No one pronounced Jerusalem's lot dead on the morning of February 6th. No one knew it was. By and large, the town, not knowing it was dead, would go off to their jobs with no inkling of what lay ahead. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, Stephen King Retrospective. Yeah, it looks like a fucking party. Join Garrett. You can do nothing against the master. Matt. Who, me? And Adam. I don't want your blood. <sighs> but we want your flesh. As they review all adaptations of King's second novel, Salem's Lot. You kids ought to know better than to be speeding around Jerusalem's lot at night. All the way through the brand new version produced by James Wan and directed by Gary Doberman. I'm not leaving. Continue coming back as the boys continue looking at all the popular authors' on-screen adaptations in publication order. I'd love to. So get away from that window. Look at me, teacher. The Salem's Lot Retrospective begins now. Do yourself a favor. Stay clear. Salem's Lot, 2004. It aired on June 20th and June 21st, 2004, and this was directed by Mikhail Solomon. Seems like we've been here before, boys. We're back talking Salem's Lot after taking a major detour with the, shall we say, different vision of Larry Cohn, a vision that Adam just probably was cursing both of our names over, Matt, when he was watching it. We're back with King's original prose. We're back with the original novel. Adam, you had to have been expecting something more than what we got last week, correct? I was, you know, I've been a little more lenient and forgiving or just enjoyed the teleplays and miniseries better than some of the movies. So I was apprehensive, but not dreading going into this. You know, I was ready for my return to Salem's Lot. Goudreau, were you looking forward to a return to Salem's Lot made about 25 years later? Yeah, with stipulations, to use a wrestling term. I did not think that the original was perfect, or even great. So I could see the potential in driving back to stay there for a second time. Where I was concerned was two things. The idea of a TNT production was point number one. And number two, I don't know much about this director, and not having read the novel, I wasn't sure if this was going to be a quote-unquote more faithful rendition of Salem's Lot, or if this was going to be something more akin to Stephen King's The Shining, where it is too slavish to the book, and for numerous reasons is miserable to get through. So I was curious, but not excited, because again, this is three goddamn hours of my time I have to commit to. Well, let's touch on something that you just mentioned. Uh, me and Adam were just talking about this director before you hopped on the call here. And this guy has mostly made his name as a cinematographer. He worked with James Cameron on The Abyss. He worked with Ron Howard on Backdraft. He worked with Steven Spielberg on Always. That's where he made a big portion of his career. But then he was starting to transition to directing in two, around 
the early 2000s. And this was one of the first projects he took on. I don't know if he was a fan, if he wasn't a fan. I, I couldn't really tell you. All I could tell you was by the time 2004 rolled around, and we we're going to discuss this every single time we cover Stephen King property. Stephen King wasn't really on the tips of a lot of people's tongues in 2004. At that point, we had gone from motion pictures in the 80s to TV films in the 90s, which we'll discuss when we discuss The Stand with Rob Lowe. And by the time 2000s rolled around, he was on mostly TV. He had a couple TV shows. He had Rose Red. He had Golden Years in the 90s. But this was a period where a lot of people, Stephen King wasn't really that popular, was he, Matt? Certainly not cinematically as much as he was in the 80s and 90s. But timing is everything, and it seemed like a lot of his properties that were being adapted were not always with a horror tinge first and foremost. Look at The Green Mile, look at Hearts in Atlantis, even look at Dreamcatcher. That's more psychological, and I'll argue it's more of a comedy than anything else when we get to it. So I think his genre appeal was changing. TV demographics were starting to get a little bit more... I don't know if prestige is the right word, but more studios, television networks were willing to do these big adaptations. But with that said, the thing that also hurt when I look at this from a timing perspective is the fact that Dreamcatcher had just come out, both the book and the movie, and neither of which were met with the most positive of reception. So I think having that big black stain, proverbial shit weasel, if you will, is something that this movie... (laughs) or this miniseries, kind of had to wrestle with. I have so many things to say about that once we get to it, because I had a visceral reaction reading that book when I originally did. But that's a few years down the line. Yeah, and the thing about this, too, is when I put this on to watch for this podcast, I think I said at the end of last week, I think I saw this when it originally aired. And then as it went on, I realized I hadn't seen a frame of this. So I was coming in as a virgin too, boys. I had not seen this particular movie. Adam, do you even remember when this aired? Oh, come on. <laughs> no. Um, no recollection of it whatsoever. And I know generally when King at least miniseries are out and about. But no, I didn't know this thing even existed. More or less that it was a TNT miniseries. More or less that 18, 19 years later, I was going to have to pay to watch a TNT miniseries. <laughs> I don't know how that works uh, for this, but no, I had no clue this was a thing until you, my best friend, told me. (laughs) Wow, it's not like I held a gun. Well, I kind of did. Yeah, well, 10 years earlier, we had The Stand, which was a massive success. It, massive rating success. By the time 2004 rolled around, I I mean, I don't remember this being classified as much see television i do remember it being aired but again i don't remember even watching it so i was curious going into this especially considering we had reviewed toby hooper's miniseries a couple weeks ago i was curious okay having seen that so close and having read the book so close to the time when i watched this movie how would it stack up let's find out so we open on Thanksgiving as we see Rob Lowe attack James Cromwell and then fly out the window, followed by them both being carried away on stretchers. Interesting way to start, especially considering this Father Callahan character, which I'll talk about here in a bit. But Matt, what do you think when you saw the way this thing started? As I went into this concerned, maybe a little lackadaisical, knowing I had three hours. What a way to start your miniseries. Completely unexpected. A, not having read the book, and B, this permutation is not in the Toby Hooper version whatsoever. So it set me up to think, okay, this is a total recontextualization of the material, not necessarily a remake. And two actors I recognized, you know, this wasn't like the Sam's Lot miniseries from 1979, where I'm like, okay, I know some of these smaller bit roles, but 
some of the leads I couldn't pick out of a lineup outside of James Mason. Whereas here, starting with Rob Lowe, which was the casting I was most concerned about, and James Cromwell, who is good in everything because he's James Cromwell, watching the two of them get thrown out a window and landing on a cop car is not something I had on my Salem's Lot bingo sheet that I did indeed have as I was watching this production. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Adam, this had to have been unexpected for you too, correct? Oh, yeah. If I didn't see the opening credits, I would have thought that I accidentally rented the wrong movie here. (laughs) This this absolutely blew me away. On the bright side, because I didn't look at the cast list, I knew nobody other than Rob Lowe. Seeing Cromwell here was a welcome addition at this point to me, but this is an entire WTF kind of opening. Dude, I know me and you watched Pump Up the Volume together. We had to have seen Samantha Mathis. Yo, for sure. Oh, boy, does she get the short shift well, in this uh, fucking movie. Princess Peach herself? Or uh, <laughs> Princess Daisy? Yes. <laughs> so we get the opening credits as a voiceover by Lowe gets us going in the film. As he says, the pain in Jerusalem's lot is icy. Now let's get this out there right off the bat. How do we feel about Lowe in this role? as opposed to, let's say, David Soul from a couple weeks ago. Matt, you were the one who was least apprehensive on Lowe. How do you feel he did here? In the scenes where he's not giving voiceover, I think he does a serviceable job. Nothing spectacular, because I just don't think there's a lot to this character. But having said that, these narrations suck so yes. hard, because it is the thing about King that I can't stand, which is, of course, the writer who is holier than thou has to give all this meandering, borderline pretentious, philosophical bullshit about the town with these metaphors about things freezing over, going back to your old town, the gravel is turned into roadways that used to be fodder. I hate all this shit, and Rob Lowe's delivery is Blade Runner-esque, where I find it so difficult. And narration is one of the hardest things to pull off in any form of storytelling whether it's a book or whether it is a a movie or miniseries, because it has to do two things. It has to give character information, but it also has to give a large amount of exposition. I would have removed the narration because we already know these are flashbacks, given Mm -hmm. the, the opening of this. So all you had to do was put up a title card that said, however many years prior this takes place, and go from there. This is like... Going into your kitchen, deciding that you are going to bake a cake and forgetting your powder. It's flat and lifeless in his delivery. Man, the problem is it starts with the voiceover, so that's the first kind of thing you get. And that voiceover is horrendous each and every time it happens. It's just letting you know that in this town I used to be in, and I'm going to return to it. And this is my emotional writer's voice. I mean, it, holy cow. Hey, you know what? There are audiobooks. There were audiobooks by 2004. An author? Like, find a way to make this stand, because holy crap, it's... Yeah. I mean, Lowe, maybe he's done some good things, other than tape women against their consent sexually, and Atkins, you know, bar commercials, but did they... Did his wig get a separate paycheck for this movie? All right, because... Can we talk about this? Between his leather jacket that he wears in a lot of this, his well-coiffed feathered hair, and the fact that there's a Sutherland in this movie, I think Rob Lowe got confused that this was a sequel to The Lost Boys, not (laughs) Salem's Lot. And to Rob Lowe's defense, 
He's great on the West Wing. I will always. I was going to say, was this before or after the West? This Wing? was after because his arc was done in '03. Okay, he, he came back for the last season. Like he garnered some goodwill from that show, Emmy nominations, and he was yeah. no longer the Brat Pack, saying almost fire and things like that. He showed that he had some credibility, but I, I do think he's miscast here to a certain degree. Yeah, there's moments where I think he do, he does pretty good, but. He feels out of place for whatever's going on here. And maybe it's a deliberate out-of-place boy returning to Salem's lot, but it's just, I don't know, feels off for what it could have been. So Ben finds out that the Marsden house has been sold to antique dealers and that the deal is indeed done. We get a flashback of a few kids getting into the house, and this is something we're going to be revisiting over and over and over throughout the course of this film. Charlie Rhodes, he drives a school bus, and we get a bit of a backstory on him, as Mirror says not to romanticize the town of Salem's Lot, as it knows darkness. Now, I'll say this much about the voiceovers. Some of them are taken directly from King's prose. Some of them, the writer added for emphasis. I think in the way of the spirit of King, I think this is fairly accurate as far as how King would approach adapting this material. So I think they were going for that. I want to mention some flaws of this as it goes. But I think at this point, in the spirit of what they're going for, I'm kind of on board with it. So I'm kind of off the train that you guys are on. Hey, you're on that bus with the, uh, the dirty figures yeah. of, of Vietnam. <laughs> so we're meeting some kids, the same kids that we met in the last miniseries. And in my mind... If they're not more likable, they're certainly more realistic, aren't they? I mean, these are more of the realistic type kids that we would have seen as opposed to the goody-good kids that we had in the Toby Hooper miniseries. They feel more contemporary, which fits mm-hmm. this update. But they still do antics that feel too much like stuff from the 50s, looking at dirty pictures and sneaking into someone's junkyard slash school bus. It reminds me of the dynamic that the standby me kids have. I'm not going to say it's better or worse than the kids in the original. It's different, but I still feel like there's a conflict of interest with the time period. Because Rob Lowe's look is very 90s, even though this is the mid-2000s, and this town feels like it's still living in the 1970s in a lot of ways feels like everyone's in a different time period. Yeah, the kids are more contemporary, but the kids are just as forgettable. As we go through this, I have a hard time of knowing which kid, as they start saying names, which kid is that? Which one did this? Which one is going to the window? So nothing makes Buddy stand out once again, and I think that's problematic because, again, you got a big-ass cast, and I can't remember who was who throughout the course of a lot of it. Susan meets up with Ben, and this is a different way of meeting, this time through emails. So they updated it with emails. This fucking relationship, if we thought it was bad last time, how bad is it in this? I don't even think they have a fucking relationship in this. No, it doesn't really feel like they do until they have to, (laughs) you know, suddenly. But as creepy as it was in that first one, because it seemed off, there's just nothing that feels like they would, I don't know, wooing each other, for lack of a better term. Yeah, at least this doesn't feel like a kidnapping like it does in the 1979 version. <laughs> but I get the sense that th- this director must love Twin Peaks, but yeah. does not understand that that show was somewhat mocking the soap opera tendencies that existed in shows prior. Here, it's doing the same thing of playing into those tropes, but it, it does it so earnestly. And, and I get a lot of King's stories do have some soap opera, especially with the character dynamics. This feels like a more of a Castle Rock type of mm. setting mm. and tone than anything else. But 
it plays it so straight that when you really analyze the way they met through emails and they're never fully intimate with one another, it makes it all the more constraining when you get to what happens with her in the third act. I will go out on this limb. I will say that, yes, last time, the last miniseries, we saw a lot of combining of characters from that novel to straighten out exactly who was who. And Adam, you said you had a hard time following it in that movie. Well, I didn't. I kind of got an idea of who was who. What they do here is they don't combine those characters. And we're going to talk about the differences in characters here as we go through the entire series. But what I do like about this miniseries is I like the melodrama. I am digging a lot of the stuff that happens as we get into it. But I'm also somebody who likes melodramatic shows. I loved Smallville, as we mentioned last month. I loved Melrose Place. I went through that last year. I enjoy this type of storytelling, and I'm getting the feeling, Matt, that you don't. The first half, I like it because it gives a dynamic to the town that the first one really doesn't have. For a small town, it feels too small in the original. Here, because there's more character inclusions, we'll talk about the Andre Brower character in a little bit. The realtor has more to do. Infidelity is given to someone else. Yeah. I, I like that there's more to work with because you have three hours, so you can really flesh this out. Works for the first half because it's a lot of good setup and ties into the town being nothing has ever gone right for a lot of these people. But once you get to the second half, it starts to wear out its welcome, and I wanted to drive a stake through this melodrama. We get a little small talk as the Marsden house is brought up, and in this one, it seems like Susan is stalking him, not the other way around. Susan's mom, meanwhile, the owner of the cafe, she comes to interfere with the proceedings and proves to be a pretty big cock block herself. We then meet Sandy McDougal as she breastfeeds her baby and says that he fell off the changing table. She says that marriage isn't what she thought it was and that they still live in her boyfriend's truck. She tells Jimmy, the doctor, that he's a good man as well as a very good doctor. <laughs> We see Ben settle into his place, and we're certainly getting a bigger feeling about this town as opposed to last time, aren't we? This town is bigger this time. It's not just one main street and a hill and that's it. There's actually a little bit of variety throughout this town. Matt, how do you feel about the feeling of this town? I like it. I appreciate that it feels more like a town and not just a block. It felt like only 20 people lived in Salem's Lot initially in the Toby Hooper one. Here it actually does feel more like a small, close-knit community, and I really appreciate that they don't like outsiders whatsoever. Speaking of outsiders, we meet Straker, this time played by Donald Sutherland. How about this casting? He's so good, and I wanted more of him. Because, yeah, he's got more screen time than Barlow, much like the initial original with James Mason, but he feels absent through so much of it. And I... Get the sense that he's playing it like he's on something the entire movie. I got that feeling, Um, too. (laughs) Which I guess makes sense, given his association. I think he brings a great dynamic. He's not as stoic as James Mason was. He's definitely playing it more over the top. Like, I see a lot of his President Snow in some of these line deliveries. That's not a bad thing, and it certainly left me wanting more. His resolution, I had huge questions about. Oh, we'll definitely get there. Me, too. I thought this was a great choice for this role. I think he brings that kind of, I don't know, respectability or just knowledge. He fits, not only because his son and the title of the Lost Boys, so there's something, you know, vampires in the family, DNA, I guess you could say it's in the blood. Yeah, there's something right with him playing this part. Funny thing about the casting of this movie. I just, we watched, for the first time since it was in theaters, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. 
Now, a lot of people are familiar with the show, but not a lot of people are familiar that there was a movie released with Christy Swanson as Buffy, and as her watcher, Donald Sutherland, yep. and as the head vampire who's after her, Rucker Howard. <laughs> so, oh, no shit. Kind of, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. So it's kind of interesting. We have a Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the motion picture reunion here, once again involving vampires. I thought that was funny. So Straker says that his delivery will consist of a huge box, one that needs to be delivered straight to him. Then Larry, he gets somebody off his property and then enlists some help with the delivery that's showing up. Interesting thing about this Floyd character, you know, he was the ex-boyfriend last time that was kind of upset at everything that's going on with Susan. Here, he kind of is like that too, but he seems like more of a lost puppy here than he is like an angry asshole boyfriend. Yeah, absolutely. It's taken down and the character is written in a different way. We see Ben continue having flashbacks as he looks at the house, and then he looks up to find a dog hanging on the fence. Oof. Yeah, that was brutal. Never happened to see it. Nah, yeah. No, same here. You know what's weird, man? This was on TNT. There is some fucking blood and violence in this that I was not expecting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Especially Agreed. a particular death we're going to get later on. We cut to a date between Ben and Susan as Ben keeps having flashbacks. And by the way, stand by me. That's playing on stage. <laughs> that's not right in your face. No, it's about pointed as these stakes. They start driving through people's heart. Third act. <laughs> Boy, you can't wait to get to that third act, can you? That whole second half is... Yeah. I kind of wish you told me just to watch part one. Burke and Weasel, they come by to say hi to Ben, and Burke tells Ben that he's read some of his work, and this would probably be what got King into conversations about 25 years after the original film. I think he would have a ton of these conversations, talk about the books that have come out and such. Now... Matt, you mentioned Andre Brower earlier. This is him as Burke. And this, as opposed to the Toby Hooper movie, this is a character who's maybe 10 years older than Ben, if that. Yeah, I'm like, he was his teacher? Yeah. Yeah. They're they're not that far apart. Like, if anything, James Cromwell should have played this part. Yeah, Um, that's a good point, actually. And it's not a bad thing. Andre Brower is one of our great actors that sadly does not get the recognition he deserves. And he adds definitely a grounded component to this. He's sort of the replacement for Susan's father in the first one. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. kind of the role he plays for this. But he also has the same exact role that Mike from It does, where he is the expert borderline cynic who is in a hospital bed for the third act of this movie. Is it also explicitly said in the book that he's gay? There's a line that Ben has where he's like, as long as he doesn't talk about personal life in the classroom. Is that what that's supposed no. to be? No, the only people who are suspected of being gay are Straker and Barlow. A couple people make comments about them moving in and the fact that two guys yeah. live together. Yeah, well, they, they openly say that, yeah. but I also mention it because there's that part where Mike is seducing him with his shirt off, and I thought the implication was that he's gay. He was yeah, I got that too. Get a rise out of him. No pun intended. <laughs> Not in the book. I did find it weird just how, I don't know if... Yeah, I'll call it how, like, racist the voiceover is. It's just like there's a sprinkle of pepper in a town full of salt. It's <laughs> just like, holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah. Like, you can't say that. It was just, wow. Are From we sure Kim Fleming did write this instead of Stephen King? <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the boys go searching for trouble as they find evidence of dead soldiers. They find Mark, he gets grabbed, as does little Ralphie, and then shoved under the ice. Kind of a foreboding scene. Not sure how scary it is, though. I thought it was actually frightening. Yeah, I I was sort of jolted out of my seat that they, with TNT still, it's not HBO. You know, you have standards and practices. So I was surprised that they openly 
depicted murder still of children. They're not five years old. They're teenagers. At least that's what I get. But you're right. This does not pack the scares that the Toby Hooper one did. There's nothing in here that is as startling or even creepy as the best parts of that. And it's not because of the three hours. I have the sense they wanted to make this more of a of a true drama than something that was horror. I mean, look at the Barlow design in this versus what they did in the original. You're getting to exactly what I was going to get to when we got to the second part of this series, is this series, to me, is the exact inverse of the Toby Hooper movie. And what I mean by that is... The Toby Hooper movie didn't really do well with the melodrama, but man, when that sucker had vampires, he went for the jolts. He went for the scares. I think this movie, and I mentioned it earlier, I think the melodrama's done relatively well. Where this movie falters, there is zero atmosphere, there is zero fright, and those vampires, once they come in, no pun intended, but they absolutely suck. Yeah, and also, you could tell this was made during the 2000s because I fucking hate when we do flashbacks that... Just abundance of color and strobe lights. I'm so glad we are past this era of filmmaking because, you know, the 70s movie, it definitely feels dated. You can call it trapped in the 70s. But this is a hybrid of everything I hate about 90s fashion and 2000s editing. I agree with that completely, especially in the flashback. It takes me back to those awkward scenes during the rage, Carrie, too. Some of those awkward 90s scenes is exactly what the flashback feels like. And they drag it on too, too long. They should bookend each night with it. Maybe people talk about it, but fucking A, every damn time. It's just annoying and it's hard to look at. And how many times can you show us the same flashback? Oh, my God. According to this series, a lot. (laughs) Meanwhile, Larry, he has the prize package as they drive away with it. Marjorie Glick, she calls Mark's house looking for her boys as Cromwell shows up with Danny. They're definitely making themselves stand out by being different in this one, aren't they? Matt, were you surprised at how much of a non-retread of that first miniseries this really was? It is up to a point. It's got the problem that something like The Thing 2011 did, where it's sort of doing its own thing, but then they feel like they have to put in, you know, there's the let me in scene. There's the scene with the kid at the window where they try to just blatantly redo key scenes, but they still want to be their own thing. I feel like this is an instance, much like the Total Recall remake, where they're trying to have their cake, as Adam talked about earlier, and eat it too. And it's both undercooked, and the frosting is a bit too hard on the surface. And it'll melt your teeth, so those vampires are going to look like Count Chocula, where they're probably in diabetic homos. (laughs) (laughs) Their victims have to be mashed up and served in an IV bag. Because... I just really did not have a fun time with that first one. I'm seeing the little changes that they're making, and I want to appreciate them, but I don't like them either. I still don't care about the characters that populate this town. I don't think there's enough to spell out this kid compared to this kid compared to this kid compared to this parent to this parent to this parent. It's the most one-note town that possibly is it. The only difference in this town is you're either a kid or you're an adult or you're elderly. Other than that, everybody, to me, is kind of the same person. Larry delivers the package to Straker as something seems to be coming their way, and it freaks them out of the house. Mark tells a cop that they were playing flashlight tag last night as a dog named Cujo was barking in the background. Which, what a set of ADR this is, huh? I didn't even <laughs> see this guy mention it like with his lips moving, but we just hear him say, Hey, Cujo, shut up! Like, Great ventriloquist work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ben tells the story of what happened to him as a kid. 
again, and then says that he did not see Ronnie Barnes before walking away. Ben tells the chief that he was having drinks last night when the kidnapping took place, and he also says that he was the first one to see the dog dead. We see that Danny might be suffering from emotional trauma as Cromwell, he comes in, this is Father Callahan, and says that the power of prayer could work wonders. Now, this Father Callahan character, he is a character who survives the book and he eventually ends up, and this is going to blow your guys' mind, he ends up in the Dark Tower series later on. <laughs> which is a series I can't wait to get to because once we get to that movie, I have so many things to say about all those books. But he does end up in those series. And in this book he has way more of a presence than what we see at least a different presence they made him stand out in this but i don't know if that was a real benefit to the character matt you didn't read the book did you so you don't really know exactly what i'm talking about no but i saw alcoholic priest and i'm like oh yeah this is stephen king <laughs> yeah for there sure. you go I, I wanted to say uh you know there's a point where i wanted to say that'll do king that'll do Sandy starts hanging and making out with Jimmy the Doctor as early 2000s rock plays in the background. Oh my god, I half expected Evanescence to start playing. In- <laughs> <laughs> this was right at their debut the year after. Ben Mears, he is caught wandering around the antique store by Straker himself. Straker invites him over for a drink, but Ben, he just shoots him down. Meanwhile, Ruth, she shoots Dud down because we have another character named Dud here. Um, so question, is this character in the book? This character is different in the book. He was in the last miniseries. He was... Oh, the, the one that was just on the streets? Yeah. Like cryptic yeah. Stuff? Okay. This is full R word. Um, yeah. Put it mildly, and it, uh, yeah, it's kind of offensive, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Definitely is. Dud is then visited by Barlow, and he is offered freedom from his disability. And so, okay, let's talk about Barlow here. And Matt, you already mentioned the... R word. We're not going to talk about that. But Barlow here is played by Rucker Hauer. How do we feel about this Barlow than we did last time? Matt, you kind of gave your cards away. You kind of gave your hand. Adam, what about you? How do you feel about Barlow in this as opposed to the Nosferatu thing that we saw a couple weeks ago? We don't have that classic image of the Count Orloff type of go, but I think he actually does a good job of being menace. I believe that Rucker Hauer is a vampire from centuries old. I think the casting in this, outside of Lowe and some other ones, overall are, pr- are pretty spot on. I think Cromwell's a good get, and I think Rucker Hauer's a pretty dang good get. The little bit we get of him, I like what he brings. Yeah, Adam and I are in agreement. Much like Sutherland, this is one of those casting coups that I thought the movie would utilize more because Barlow's got more dialogue. Anything more than one word does. More than <laughs> I was going to say, all he did was roar yeah. a couple weeks ago. <laughs> so he's more of the influencer to infest this town, which I like. But he comes in so sporadically that when he actually comes in for the last scene that he's in and he talks as much as he does, it felt like they were making up for lost time. Yeah, it feels like they had Rucker Howard's like, you got two weeks to use him, shoot everything you can. And that's what they did, because he feels like he's a part of this movie and then comes in to be a part of it. Wow, you think Rucker Howard pulled the Marlon Brando card, huh? I don't know if he <laughs> pulled it or that's just all that yeah. this little nickel and dime production could afford because they're spending it all on really poor wigs for all the townspeople. (laughs) I'll say this much. I think Barlow in the book and in the Toby Hooper miniseries had a real omnipresent presence. When you see that video cover, you imagine that this character is engulfing that town. I don't get the feeling that 
Barlow in this is really doing that. Now, it is more of King's vision in this. King had the idea of what would happen if Dracula invaded. First, it was New York City, but then he made it this small main town. I think I like the monster presence of, of a couple of weeks ago a little bit better. I hate to say it, but I just think once we see that monster, and Matt said it when we did that podcast, he is scary when he first comes up here. Rucker Howard seems like he's having a blast, but maybe that just kind of feels in tune with exactly what this miniseries is going for. I don't think this miniseries is really going for scares. I think it's just going for getting through it and having this character be a not as big a presence as we saw a couple weeks ago. I think part of the foreshadowing, the, the coming doom, as it were, I think that's coming from Saker and Sutherland. I think they give him a little more as just being that front man of hell's coming with me. I could have used even more of him just being that foreshadowing presence, knowing that his boss is looming. Danny is then visited by Ralphie, and this is shot in a pretty creepy way as the camera's whipping around and the sound is all over the place. This time, it's not a window, but the curtain he enters into. This was different. So a curtain is something you have to be invited in if you're a vampire. It's not. It's, the fact that you're already in the hospital room isn't enough. Yeah. Scratch uh, that note. Yep. That was fine as well. He's also on painkillers. Like, does it count if you let him in when it's not yeah, your that, own fruition? That's not consent. Well, not that Rob Lowe knows what that means. <laughs> I don't know if I would have gone for this director going for what Toby Hooper did and have a platform and have these kids approach a window. I mean, that would go into, and we're going to talk about this, you know, the Pet Cemetery movie they did a few years ago, Territory. But I don't know if I can see a curtain being the thing that is shielding this kid from this vampire. I, I see the imagery they're going for here as he's raising his hand to it and we get close-ups of it. It's going for that creepy feel, but it's just like, God, you're just trying to reenact scenes. Like, Matt, doesn't it kind of remind you of The Amazing Spider-Man with Andrew Garfield where we have to kill Uncle Ben, but we're not going to do it in the exact same way he did last time? Yeah, that, that's an amicable comparison. Although Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone have a lot more chemistry than Rob Lowe and Samantha Mathis do. Well, they're given a chance to have chemistry more than Rob yeah, Lowe and Samantha helps, Mathis are. It also helps they were dating at the time. They should have just cast Rob Lowe's nanny. <laughs> <laughs> and I love, I made the joke as I was watching this because Christian watched this with me. He's a big West Wing fan. Oh. He goes, he's literally in the West Wing of the hospital as he's telling his story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's fucking fantastic. Danny is then found dead. We see Ben. He visits Burke's class, telling them about receiving the Pulitzer's Prize, and then tells the class that everything happens in this, the smallest of towns, as we hear that he was actually rescued by Marines in Afghanistan. So we're bringing Afghanistan into this movie because this was right at the brink of the war on terror. So here's what we have. This is also one of those things that dates it the worst. Mm -hmm. The fashion's already bad enough, the music, but having such a direct parallel to the war in Afghanistan and tying that into your main character, when it's independent of the story, it's completely superfluous for context. You already have his backstory with going into the house, which is a good addition. I like how that's more brought to the forefront, but adding this is just calling a spade a spade and feeling like you have to be contemporary. And it gives Stephen King a, a chance to take a shot at soldiers. Oh, he he did right, and a bunch of Marines are now in prison for the next 30 years. Like, oh, great, we get it. Yes, you hate service people. Dude. Well, <laughs> well, to be fair, this was added by the screenwriters of this. This was not in King's prose. The book was written in 75. Right. So, so did they mention Vietnam in the book? No, they don't. <laughs> this was all added by these screenwriters to make it, as Matt puts it, contemporary. 
Burke and Susan, they talk about how Danny's body temperature drastically dropped and how the two boys missing has everything to do with the Marsden house. It, quote unquote, judges them. Ben, he warns Susan to not go to the house and then reveals that the book he's writing is actually nonfiction. And all of this pisses Susan off and she just storms off. That's the end of that relationship. <laughs> this is a weird, this book gets mentioned so often in so many different ways. It's almost a MacGuffin all on its own of what he's actually doing, who he's writing about, who he's going to piss off in this town because he's going to insult everybody by bringing it up. I don't know. It's a weird choice that never really just pans out as well as they think it does. And again, I mentioned this earlier, but not that this relationship was handled that well in the first movie. All of us said that it wasn't. I would have liked to have seen something built off this, but they do absolutely nothing with this. Like, they don't even try. Why even have Susan here? It just goes to prove that they were trying to contemporize this so much, they kind of dug themselves into a hole. They're like, well, we have three hours, but we've run out of time to kind of build this relationship, so we're just going to brush it off right now. Until, like you said, Matt, until they have to at the end. Yeah, and you got that thing where you got, you know, the small-town girl never left home, and he returned home. So, of course, they got to get together because pretty people on screen. Eva reveals that she was not a very good person when she was younger. She played evil games with Marston when she was a teenager. The Glick house starts getting prank calls as the funeral of Danny takes place. And we hear that his parents refuse an autopsy. And whatever killed him is getting buried with him. Which is kind of creepy to think about, actually. <laughs> Jimmy tells Roy and Sandy that he'll make a house call to see the baby. And then we cut to Ruth not really feeling too well. She says that he, she just had the strangest dream. We see Floyd. He starts getting flashes that he's hearing the boy laugh at him from inside the coffin. And a great cut is done here as the lid is open. And we cut to one of Mark's action figures, which I thought was actually kind of cool. Like that, I think that's a Hellraiser character, isn't it? That action figure he has? That is a Hellraiser like. figure from one of the very early McFarlane toy lines. And I know because I bought the McFarlane toys when they first came out, these Hellraiser figures. I thought it was I knew Nemesis from know. Resident Evil 3. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I, I did think that was a good cut. Although, again, there's nothing really too creepy in this or scary in this because I think the scene was pulled off so much better in the previous version because we didn't really hear anything. We just saw the way Mike was reacting to this coffin. You know, you but know. we also, in that first one, we also got throughout that we had this kid that was into horror, into horror movies, into toys. So everything he thought of made sense. It's almost like a third of the way through this movie, they're like, Oh, damn, that's right. we got to start to lay the groundwork for why this kid is going to do some of the things he's going to do. Meanwhile, Roy, he shows up what we think is to interfere with Sandy and Jimmy, though this scene isn't nearly as drawn out as the one from 79. This goes by pretty quick. It's the one thing in this movie that goes by pretty quick. <laughs> Susan is getting chatted to by Mike and Floyd as they're telling her to make a choice. Meanwhile, Mike tells Burke that the last time he slept, he saw his mother's eyes as he drowned, and Burke thinks that he must still be using to think things like this. Susan brushes off Ben as Dud goes to visit Floyd. He tells Floyd that he's different and that he's on his way to see Ruth Crockett. He pulls a disappearing trick as he appears right behind Floyd and bites his neck. I think they're kind of going for that same contemporary type bite that we saw in 79, but again, the vampire stuff is not nearly as effective this time. No, and they just look like any old vampire. They came up with a really cool design in the original with the yellow eyes that are clearly contact lenses yeah. and the elongated fangs. Here, you could tell they used CG to 
do some of the polishing, and it, it looks unfinished for certain shots, especially that dissolve effect as he goes from one oh. one end of the camera to the other, and when people just turn to dust. Oh boy, this. Uh, not to say TNT didn't have any money, but. I kind of wish they just burned a cinder and just turned to ash rather than... Yeah. Having them go to the ceiling like that is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen in a vampire <laughs> film. It looks like shit in Blade, but... <laughs> yeah, I thought of Blade too. Yeah. A lot, actually. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of... You know, it feels like this is a holdover. Blade was such a big influence, not just on comic movies, but on vampires, because everyone wanted to do slick, monstrous vampires that just, you stab them, <laughs> they burst into flames. Let's not forget, too, that Buffy was two years removed. They had just had their final season, so I think we're still seeing the influence of that as well. Let's not forget, too, with Blade, it was ash that they kind of burst into, so it makes sense from that standpoint. These effects are so bad, you'd think that Disney rushed them out into freaking production. Yeah, X-Files had a couple effects like this. Where I remember one episode where a guy, I don't know if you remember this, Matt, but every time he created a shadow, like anybody who was in that shadow kind of dissolved, and it, it had that exact same effect. That's the effect I thought of when I was watching this. It was weird. Mike is showing signs of drug use as he lifts his shirt to Burke. This causes Burke to call Ben, and he shows up to see Mike laying down with no bruise as there was before. Burke says he heard laughing, and the window is open. So the cops show up, and once again, they don't believe poor Burke here. And the chief comes to a very true conclusion that after finding the body, Burke didn't call the police. He called the writer, which I thought was a funny little choice of words there. I like this chief of police better than I liked the last one. I'll say that much. Yeah, he's doing something. He's involved a yeah. little more, that's for sure. He might as well be uh, freaking uh-huh. pangborn from the uh, Castle Rock stuff. And we'll see that character when we get to Needful Things, too. Mm-hmm. Ben attacks Roy, who seems to be sensitive to the sun, as Mike shows up and tells Burke to look at him. Although, not, again, not as effective as 79, for sure. Oh, and this reminded me, speaking of Superman 4, whenever vampires step into the sun, they just, they go, ah! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they power down, as you guys mentioned in that <laughs> podcast. Not, not, but nothing that a scarf and sunglasses can't fix, as we'll find out later. <laughs> right? But you're still in the sun. So Mike's voice, it gets deeper, and he punches the mirror before jumping out the window. Oh, my God. Danny. Right when he fucking gets on a zip line and shot backwards, oh. I, I, had to pause, I had to pause the movie. I was laughing so hard because every time the vampires get pushed back, it's so fucking funny. <laughs> it's terrible. Danny, it feeds on Sandy, and Ben is told that he'll never be a bloody pirate, which is, by the way, a line straight from the book. Okay, it, um, I, but, I, I figured it had to be, because that was such a random out-of-left-field line. Mm-hmm. It's one of those lines that kind of looks kind of cool on the page, but when it's said in a series like this, and you see it being said, it's it's not really effective. Hey, not too long ago, we all had a great series of Pirates of the Caribbean, and so suddenly I'm waiting for Will to show up out of the woods. <laughs> We could only be so lucky. Does this mean that Kira Knightley is showing up so that not to hug him in the same frame? Oh, never mind. We already covered that. <laughs> this is when Mark is visited by Danny, who tells him to open a window. He floats in, and Mark puts a cross on him, which leads him out the window. I just love how Mark is like, yeah, fuck you. I'm going back to sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, he can't, like, this Mark is the most ineffectual character in the movie. Yeah, you know, I kind of thought he was a little, I shouldn't say effective, but he was a much better character, I thought, in that first one than this one. Yep. Mears, he's attacked, and he goes to the hospital as his voiceover picks up where they left off, and a black and white filter is changed to a colored one right in front of our eyes, which, how many camera trips are they trying to do here? (laughs) I had completely forgotten and wondered why we suddenly flipped back. Just, 
I don't know, some of these scene transitions, I gotta mm-hmm. take a second to try to recalibrate and figure out where I am and why the hell we just went there. For a three hour movie, it sure seems rushed, doesn't it? It's either rushed or it's not long enough. And they said that in the first one. This needs to yeah. be more than one movie or it needs to be half the length. We'll talk about how that could happen when we get to the end of this here. Jimmy, meanwhile, he asks for a $10,000 loan to pay off this blackmail as he walks into Burke's room and tells him that he had a mild heart attack, which Burke believes was caused by fear. He yells to Jimmy to find out why Mike has two cuts on his chest, and Susan is told to go get some holy water. We finally get the full story of what happened to Ben in that house, and of course, this winds up with a kiss from Susan. Larry goes to Ruth and grounds her, which she couldn't care less about. <laughs> this story for Ben in the house, is this what happened in the book? Like, does it flesh it out and explains what had happened? Because the original Salem's Lot didn't, if I remember. Something yeah, the different. original Salem's Lot glossed over it. This adds a little bit more to it. It is basically what happened to him, but they add a few things to it. And this whole Ruth storyline... <sighs> This is something that should have been cut. Don't you, you just think, cut man? it out? Just cut yeah. it out. Uh, is this the daughter of the realtor? Yeah. This and the crippled guy completely. Those are... Aside of that, it's okay to begin with that someone with mental illness is pining after a teenager and just everything with the way that's executed with him being R-word, which they openly say in this movie, too. Way, way to put a positive stamp on that. So, yeah, I would have axed this completely. Because this is straight out of Lost Boy. She's fucking Jason Patrick. Susan goes to gather Callahan and tells him to please go visit the boys at the hospital. We cut to the police chief, who is asking Larry what's happening to this town, as he reveals that Floyd, he died in his jail cell today. He then interrogates Larry, and he finds out that Straker can't go anywhere unless he's invited. The chief just pauses and asks Larry, what have you done? This scene of Floyd going through this fucking vent... Yeah, you could Ridiculous. say it is the, uh, not just because he's on the other side, but this is the low point of this miniseries. <laughs> it really is. This is terrible. He's <laughs> like, as soon as I get through here, I'm going to kick your ass, and they cut to this matte shot of him compressed. It looks like, you know Who Framed Roger Rabbit when Eddie goes to Toontown <laughs> and is in the elevator with Droopy? Yes. And he gets compressed? It looks like that. <laughs> I wanted Rob Lowe to go, you're floor, sir. You know, it could have been like you could show him going to the vent and then you could have just cut it. If you had the effect that looked like this, why go through with it? It looked terrible. Oh, my God. We cut to Father Callahan, who's visiting Burke at the hospital and just simply tells him, I'm always available to help you, Matt. Susan is told by her mom to stay away from Ben as she reveals that Floyd slit his wrist in prison and drank his own blood. How did that kill a vampire exactly? That just sounds like recycling. Like the vampire equivalent of drinking your own piss. I guess it'll kill you eventually. (laughs) Jesus. Susan goes to the house and is approached by Mark Petrie. And after talking about how vampires are on the tips of everybody's tongue, they go towards the house together. What I found weird about the ending of this movie, and we're finally in that final fourth act here, is how much the house does not play into its conclusion. Adam, did you catch that? I did, and it blew me away. I'm like, wait, so... Arlo's not been in that the whole time. Like, the house is not nearly as important as everything that goes on. The house in the first one is the embodiment of evil. Evil is always present in this town because of the house, yada, yada. In this one, no. Like, it's not that way. And they seem to miss why it's important. And even when we go there, 
then we leave it. It doesn't live up to the for- forebodingness, forebodedness, foreboding, however we want to think about it, that it's led up to be throughout the entire movie. It's just the house is there. They went with the inverse of it feels like the people who live in the house manifest evil versus the house manifesting evil on people that live there. Mm-hmm. Not a bad decision, but it does not feel like the foreboding presence that it did in the first one. So they walk in, and it is just as dark as the house in the previous miniseries, and they are found by Straker. He tells them to pick what they want and leave. They say they aren't stealing, and I love how Straker is just, again, Sutherland is just always so calm in this. It's like he's been on, like, a permanent doobie this entire fucking (laughs) miniseries. He knocks out Mark and then stalks Susan with a gun until she's against the door. And we hear her... his, yeah, that was counting creepy. down. I got to the count of five. Oh wow, that yeah. yeah. I don't know. There was something about that one. You finally had some menace going on. We hear her scream from the outside of the house. Jimmy he tells Ben about the blackmail he's involved in. As Marjorie wakes up and is turned to dust by Ben, but not before biting Jimmy. Mark escapes as Ben heads away from the house, and Straker is taken out by him. Which man, that was a crazy scene as well. Mark, he goes to Eva's looking for Ben, and we're focusing on innocuous sounds as Ben approaches from a different angle. They meet up with Jimmy and Callahan, and we get the heroes walking in a line shot, which <laughs> I thought was weird. I didn't think we would get the fucking Reservoir Dogs fucking guys walking in a line shot in Salem's Lot movie, but here we are. Jimmy, he's given $10,000 by Ben as Mark tells us a joke about a very cool hippie vampire. <laughs> Adam's laughing. I knew the joke. I I couldn't believe he pulled it. That's how bad of a one it was. They walk in the house as PTSD is settling in with Ben. They find Straker hanging from the ceiling, apparently bled dry. They then find Mike, who Ben stakes on the spot. And Ben stops Jimmy from staking Susan. Parkins, meanwhile, he admits that he's scared as Ben tells Callahan about the spirits he felt inside the house. The editing in this is weird because one minute they're in the house and the next they're not. And we don't even see them leave the house. No, we also don't get to see many vampire deaths. The fact that Uh we get off-screen fucking staking in a three-hour move kind of ridiculous. Matt, is this what you're talking about when you talk about the anger you have towards this second part? It's not anger as much as boredom. I felt like all of this was so anticlimactic. And say what you want about Return to Salem's Lot. If you want to watch vampires get killed, that is your movie. Yes. <laughs> like, we should be riveted when Mears is finally back inside this house. And we're not. And that's the fault of Lowe and the screenwriting. Oh, this, shit, mm-hmm. this whole second half reminds me so much of the second half of the It miniseries. Oh, we'll get there. Like, it, it, yeah, so much of the story beats and the, the anticlimacticness. Mm. You have a black guy at a hospital. Yeah, a lot of parallels. Yeah. Yeah, we're definitely going to have things to say about that. Jimmy stops by to see Sandy and Roy, and Roy ends up bargaining with him. Jimmy and Ben, they go to visit Burke, and they decide they need to stop Barlow if they can find him. Callahan drops Mark off, and after she tells Callahan she never wants to see him again, we see Barlow twisting her head and then grabbing Mark. Wow, so this is how she gets off in this, huh? That was vicious and did not see that coming. It got me. Second um, second most shocking death we're going to get in this movie. Yeah, we're getting to the other one here pretty soon. A lot better than the Three Stooges double noggin knocker we saw 
<laughs> the last miniseries, I'll say that much. Barlow is intimidating Callahan as he grabs him, and then we fade to black. Eva, she's visited by Ed, who gets her to join him. She walks outside and then is bitten. Larry, he's attacked by a whole set of vampires as Mark almost walks into a death sentence by coming into the hospital room without knocking. You're right, Adam. With all this vampire stuff going on, TNT was obviously given some leeway in this. We couldn't see one vampire death? Well, the very few that we got, they just float away to to fucking... Yeah, (laughs) you're right. Including tongue depressor crosses being able to kill somebody. But the ones that actually matter when you're going vampire hunting and staking, it's just amazing that that's what they would decide not to show. Burke convinces Ben to take Mark with him and Jimmy. As Parkins, he just heads out. Callahan surprisingly attacks Burke as Jimmy rescues Larry from suicide. They go back to the house. As Jimmy falls through some steps to a motorized saw. That was different. The saw that I knew as soon as that saw showed up in the first 20 minutes, I'm like, oh, this shit's coming back. Yeah, but you don't expect this kind of death in a TNT miniseries in 2004, though. That was the weird thing. This wasn't Walking Dead territory yet. We we were six years away from that. My jumped, jumped up, got off the couch, and left the room. Oh, did she? (laughs) She did not see this. And I didn't see this coming. Had completely forgotten about the saw. Had... No idea, and I say of anything in this movie, this one suddenly got my attention. Yeah, I watched this when Jen was at work, and I'm pretty sure she would have done the same thing. She's like, "Yep, I'm out." I they awaken by myself because I don't want to subject people to torture. <laughs> well, I mentioned I watched this by myself. They awaken Barlow as he tells them killing him won't kill the evil that is within the town of Salem's Lot, and how weak Ben really is. Is there an Go evil on. in this town? Because all I know is the house doesn't matter, and it's just this dude. Because if there's evil in this town, maybe that should have been the fucking focus. Good point. Rob Lowe says in his autobiography that Rucker Hauer, I mean, as he's prone to do, he did it in Blade Runner. He's going to do it here, too. He, he's prone to go off script, mm-hmm. you know. So he went off script for this little thing, and the director was pissed. He just yelled cut, and he's like, no, 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 no. you got to say exactly the way it is on the page. And Hauer eventually did it with a word added here and there. I think he's trying here, but it's just, again, with the underdevelopment of this character, I just I don't feel anything for this finale. Uh, the one improvement is that he actually talks instead of just opening the coffin and stabbing him. But this feels like yeah. something that should have been discussed more throughout the movie. Is this town beyond saving, especially if he's doing autobiographical work? I thought they were going to do something like uh, in It, where every 30 years, like, something horrible happens in the town. There's, like, a fire or, like, a shooting as it stands or as it stakes i find <laughs> just so much of this to be immensely underwhelming so he says that he is the vampire and wow is this a lot of blood for 2004 tnt we see the stake penetrate the skin and blood flow like a geyser as barlow screams and then finally dies I oh, this was like john jeff when he got sucked into the bed in nightmare on elm street <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I dig this part with Barlow here. The conversation, the back and forth, as much as anything in this movie that's been pretty anticlimactic, and also what vampire would put bodies in a basement that actually has a window that sees outside. I mean, that's just very bad planning there on Barlow's part. It's different than what I expected. I think Rucker Hauer actually delivers probably the most impetus, the most inflection, the the best delivery in anything is just this little speech here at the end. Though, of course, because it's Stephen King, the author is, the writer is paramount to everything, you know, that could possibly be. We then see Susan, she shows up at Ben's, as she tells him that she doesn't need any help. 
She just needs him to be happy. She tries convincing him to let her in, which he doesn't, as he tells her that he wishes that she'd never gone into the house. She tells Ben that Ronnie Barnes was never alive the night that he went into the house and that he could have never saved her. She goes on to say that it's time for him to forgive himself, but as Mark approaches her, she gets ready to bite him, but not before Ben stakes her. This was an interesting way to get rid of Susan. I kind of prefer this to 1979, but it's a little too little too late. Too little too late surmises the last 90 minutes of this movie. And I thought it was a better way to go. I like that she wasn't evil just because she was turned into a vampire. No, she still had some of her humanity there. Though everything having to do with Ronnie in the house, I could give a flying vamp about because it really doesn't make any sense because of the way they tell what he saw or didn't see. But him standing up and willing to stake her in the end is is a nice little shot. Ben is then stalked by other vampires as he runs a few over, and wouldn't you know it, here's a huge explosion, because we haven't seen any of these in these movies. Where Ruth the hell tells Larry, these town people come from? <laughs> I know, right? Suddenly this town is up. populated by an immense amount of vampires. <laughs> they almost turn into zombies at this point, huh? They almost don't seem like vampires. They're hungry for flesh and blood. Like This is really more like zombies to me. If they're zombies, they ate all the brains off of this production. <laughs> Ruth tells Larry that he can't join them, but they do want his flesh. So he finally gets his comeuppets. All the vampires are coming out of the woodwork as Callahan yells, Damn you to hell, toward Ben Mears. Classic movie, Shout to the Heavens, that always works. Oh, the, the oh. Planet of the Apes moment where it's, Damn you all to hell. Damn you all to I, hell. I thought of the X-Men Wolverine moment, actually. Yeah, <laughs> that too. Thought of. Ben dies as Mark runs for his life. Killing off Ben. Interesting choice. I was good with it. Yeah, me too. I mean, I didn't have to deal with him going to heaven at the end of this, but I, I thought this was kind of a, a pretty good idea. At least it wasn't Transformer heaven, right, Matt? So much. Oh, wow. <laughs> Optimus what, Prime would have been a better narrator for this movie than Rob Lowe. Yeah, no, there would have been some actual emotion in that robot voice. We get a final voiceover where he says, Now he'll sleep like the dead as credits roll on Salem's Lot, and I can finally sleep. So this does something I hate. I hate hard rock covers of iconic songs. This cover of Pain of Black by the Rolling Stones is fucking garbage. Yeah. No, garbage would have done it better. No, this is terrible. Terrible, terrible. I completely agree with you. And one of my my favorite classic rock songs. Yep. Yeah, me too. Scale of 1 to 10... What do we give Salem's Lot 2004? Is it more than 1979? Or hell, even more than Return to Salem's Lot? Adam, you go ahead and go, sir. For a TV movie that ended up getting a cast that it did, kudos for it. It's amazing how unimpressive and dwaddling this story ends up being most of the time. Rob Lowe, I guess he's trying to bring just dispassionate, uninterested character. But because of that, I'm dispassionate and uninterested watching it. The little changes that they are enough to at least make you look up and go, hey, they're doing something different. And that's about it. I'll say that Cromwell and Rucker Hauer are the standouts in this. I could have used more of both, as well as Sutherland. I think Donald Sutherland is a good, creepy presence. Again, once we get to that Needful Things shop, I could have used more revolving around that shop in this town. I think it would have helped the movie quite a bit. But all in all, this has the same problems as 79, but multiplies it by being on a TV budget that could have done it better, should have done it better, and the areas that they tried to change, this 
don't change it enough to save this movie. I watched it once, and as I said at the beginning of this, I'm kind of mad I had to pay Warner Brothers for a TNT fucking movie, but it exists, and that's about all that I could say about it. I was excited to read the book after we watched the first movie, but this one had the opposite effect, and it doesn't interest me whatsoever. I'm going to stake this movie three times on ten. Three on ten from Adam Bunch. Wow. Adam has not liked this series one bit. Matt, what about you? This was disappointing, considering the cast of great character actors that do their best to liven up a story that, quite frankly, having not read this book, they're not justifying this runtime or garnering the reputation of this book as one of King's better ones, because while the first one, you know, we touched on this, it's the inverse problem. And Adam alluded to this earlier. Some It's either you shave off 30 minutes or you add 90 minutes and make this like a true miniseries where it's five hour-long episodes. It's undone by, as a vampire movie, it's not that interesting. And as a drama, it all falls by the wayside in the second half and descends into some parts that are incongruent, like Stryker or Stryker's death or the way Susan is off. So much of it feels... For the first half, I didn't feel like I was bothered by watching a TV adaptation. This one, the second half, I honestly did. Maybe that's a problem with the story, or maybe that's a problem with the execution. I did enjoy the first half more than I thought I would, despite the absence of scares. But between the narration and being unfulfilled by the blood-sucking villains, I'm landing on a 5 on 10. I think it's a notch below the 1979 one. But it's not terrible. And again, I'm judging this based on some of the miniseries we'll have coming up and some of the ones we've already covered. 5 on 10 from Goudreau. As somebody who really enjoys this book, I think it's one of King's best when it comes to small town folk dealing with evil that comes into their town. And we're going to see this story, as we mentioned, a lot in the course of this retrospective. I think the source material is much better than what we've seen perceived on screen. Although, I will say it again, I think what Hooper was able to accomplish with atmosphere, it faltered when it came to the melodrama. Here, this movie, I think, I shouldn't say thrive, I think it's better when it focuses on the melodrama within this town, within these characters, because we're seeing just how big pieces of shit these people really are. But it falters when it comes to the important stuff when you do a vampire film, the vampire stuff. There's stuff that is jolting, as we mentioned, but there's not really anything that's overly creepy. You guys mentioned the ice scene. I guess that's more disturbing to me than anything else. You know, it, it leaves you claustrophobic. I still don't think we've seen the ultimate version of this story. Are we going to get that soon? Well, we'll talk about that here in a bit. But for me, I pretty much land exactly how Matt landed on this. I'm giving this a five. I am glad I finally got to watch it because this is something that has been in the background for close to 20 years now. But I was so disappointed because I think Rob Lowe, he could have been written better. He could have been dressed better, as you guys have mentioned. He could have had better wigs. And everyone around him, as good as they are as actors, they just don't bring anything menacing or interesting to the story. So it just kind of lingers around. And I can't give anything like that that lingers for three hours higher than a five. So I'm going five on ten for Salem's Lot 2004. All right, Goudreau. I talked about the fact that the ultimate rendition of this happened hasn't taken place we're gonna get a new one whether we do or don't at the end of this particular retrospective we'll talk about here in a bit but assuming that we do 
What do you expect when we get to the James Wan-produced version of Salem's Lot? I'm concerned because there was another Stephen King remake that we got in the last, I'll say, five years that was hyped up a lot and had a similar team behind it that was really one of the most disappointing readaptations of something that was not perfect the first time they tried it. And I'm worried we're going to get something similar with Salem's Lot. If James Wan was directing it, I'd have more interest, but it's not even Lee Winnell, who really stepped out of Wan's shadow with the Invisible Man remake. This is Gary Dauberman, who I don't think has directed anything before. This cast list is no big names. So I'm starting to drain my own interest, and to be honest, I kind of want to bite my own neck so I don't have to see it. And hell, we haven't even seen a trailer for it yet, so how do we even know if this is going to yeah. come out at all? We're probably going to get the Boogeyman Night Shift movie, which is coming out in June, before we even see a trailer for this. Oh, boy, that scares me too, that we haven't seen any marketing material for this, except for a picture here and there. Adam, as somebody who hasn't really gone with this series, your ears kind of perked up when we mentioned James Wan had produced this version of it when we talked about it all those months ago. What are you thinking we're going to get when we finally get to the James Wan-produced, Gary Dauberman-directed version of Salem's Lot? We'll see if it actually ever happens. <laughs> uh, like Matt said, I'd be a lot more excited if he was actually directing this film, or as you said, if Matt said, if, if Winnell was directing this film. Putting a producer's name on it in Hollywood sometimes doesn't mean anything other than a way to get some financing, so who knows? Look at Jason Blum. I still think that there is a story here that should really draw people in and give that sense of dread and vampires, and I should love this go home to a town that is evil and there's a vampire house on it. This is tailor-made for everything that should suck me in, and it just has not done it yet. So I think the potential is there, and who knows? We got a Hellraiser movie not that long ago of people that I had never heard of involved with that thing whatsoever. And all in all, people think that it turned out, I'm going to save our thought, my thoughts because we're going to discuss it one day, maybe, but all in all, that was received much better than a lot of thought. So I think the potential is there for a Salem's Lot movie in today's day and age to be the best adaptation we've seen yet. And I'm hopeful that that's what we're going to get if this movie ever decides to see the light of day. Oh, boy. And that's a big F. You know, when they announced it, I got to say, I think Juan is more than producer by name here. He has a real affinity for this property. He has come out and said that he is a big fan of that book. He wants to see that book done justice. And I am somebody who is all for that. And of course, Stephen King is all for that. If you say you're going to do his book justice, he's going to really like you. If you do things like call him in the middle of the night and ask him if he believes in God and then come out with a movie like The Shining, he's going to be all against you. So I think he's saying all the right things. I think he has the right vision for this as a producer. Like Matt, I don't know this director's work. I don't know most of the cast. But I didn't know most of the cast of malignant either and that is oh god if we ever do a one-off with james oh, yeah. one i think that's one worth doing because holy shit there's so much to dissect there I'll discuss uh, that i think he yeah i think this has the potential to be very good the final cut of this is under two hours so it's going to be a very condensed version which kind of concerns me because this small town, I think, needs kind of to be fleshed out in order to feel what exactly happens to them. But again, as somebody who's read that book and as somebody who has a real affinity for that book, I'm more positive than negative on this. And like Matt, we are going to get to that property that he's discussing. I'm not going to reveal it. But man, I remember having similar thoughts when I came out of that theater. All right. So Matt, 
we're assuming at this point, we're recording this, gosh, about a month and a half before it actually gets released. Let's assume that this is pushed back yet again. We've been mentioning in our podcast leading up to the final podcast of this month that we have a plan in place in case that doesn't happen. Do you want to reveal exactly what that is? Sure. So for a one-week preview, so to speak, because we have a slot to fill, we don't typically do a lot of new releases that are independent of past retrospectives. But when you have a movie with a twerking, dancing killer robot, I kind of talked to Garrett and said, hey... Since we're not doing the Chucky TV show, which I would love to do as a Patreon thing, why don't we do Megan as a one-off review, a la something like the Black Phone? We're all on board. Now that it's streaming, we can all watch the unrated cut, because I'm curious about it, and we'll probably do that as a one-off review to fill the slot. And then whenever Salem's Lot comes out, who knows, could be six months, could be six years from now. Uh, maybe it's like Avatar 2, where it's shot six years ago and we never see it until they decide to release it. But that's our plan A. And we haven't thought of anything better, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> well, it does have one connection, and that's that it's produced by the same producer of the Salem's Lot remake, which is why we both kind of came up with that suggestion. But I just hope to God that this fucking Salem's Lot comes out because I don't want to do another intro and outro for this series. <laughs> oh, boy. And Adam, I'm assuming, I mean, me and Matt both saw this in theaters. You haven't seen this yet, correct? Absolutely not. Okay, well, that'll be an interesting review. And, you know, if Salem's Lot does come out, I still want to do that movie eventually because there are many things to say about it. But that does it for now for Salem's Lot. We will be revisiting the author's work in the coming months, much to Adam's chagrin. Um, I do want to mention, too, at this point, it's at least a couple months old, but Matt and I did a guest spot on the Horror Returns podcast where we talked about March Madness, where we did a tournament of elevated horror movies. And if you people hate the term elevated horror, then listen to me and Matt discuss it because we kind of got that room going with our renditions of exactly what we thought elevated horror was. But big shout out to those guys for inviting us on. And I look forward to doing that show again. Matt, did you have fun on that show? Yes, I did for the three plus hours that we were on there. It's well worth your time to listen to. <laughs> yes, very fun. But until next week, when we discuss either Salem's Lot 2023 or Megan, a good podcaster illuminates truth. Thank you, boys. There's a presence in that house. I don't know if you can feel it. Oh, I can feel it. I felt it before when I was a boy and I went inside. I thought it was me. I thought it was some manifestation of my own fear. It wasn't. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast. I'll never forget it. Please join us next week for an entirely new review. Evil comes from inside of all of us. And if you'd like to hear the boys talk about the film adaptations of Carrie and The Shining, please head over to www.bingemedia.net and click the Aftertaste tab. They were very close friends. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment to give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others to find and discover these podcasts. This is a good town, a good community. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan.
You're sure it wasn't a dream? Edited by Garrett. I didn't do anything wrong. Voiceovers by Adam. If we burn them out, they'll have nowhere to hide. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Nothing to sink your teeth into. See you around, neighbor. Around, around what? Yeah, around. You and I can have long discussions. We'll have heated debates deep into the night. He did another King thing we're going to be covering. Nightmares and Dreamscapes. <laughs> he goes all crap. Hey, it's funny. Showing your hand there, Adam. That's my, ta- that's my tagline for this entire series. <laughs> it's all right. We only have about 96 more to go. Um. Oh, Ava Green gets naked a lot. Sorry. <laughs> I got the Jesus. I got the sequel wow. to 300 playing in the background. <laughs> okay, I was like, man, we haven't even started yet, and I already have like three bloopers all set. Um. <laughs> Matt has the same indication he's back that I did. He just opened a can. <laughs> <sighs> Except I have uh, Dr Pepper Zero Sugar oh, Cherry. I, I have Polar Seltzer Water. So. Neither of us are, uh, neither of us are partaking. Although, although Jen brought um, a whole jar of uh, moonshine cherries, and I've been kind of snacking on those as we've been going. Oh. <laughs> so, as soon as I, as soon as I finish, I'm going to crash hard. All right. Speaking of crashing hard, let's talk about this particular <laughs> film, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Was he a fan? Was he not a fan? I don't know. I haven't been able to see any real... Hold on. The landlord from Salem's Lot calling to save the rents. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> she had a ringer on. Um, so we get the opening credits as a voiceover by Lowe gets us going in the film. As he says, the pain in Jerusalem's Lot is icy. Now let's so get his- this out there. Oh, go ahead. Nope, nope, nope. I'm going to save it. Okay. I mean, look at the Barlow design in this versus what they did in the original. Yeah, you hit on exactly what was going to be a big part of when we get, get to that second. Um, the second, I'm sorry. <laughs> I have, I have, a, I have a moonshine cherries. Um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> you're getting to exactly what I was going to get to when we got. It takes me back to those awkward scenes um, in, um, oh, God dang it, what was it? What was the first King series that we went through? The Shining? Um, Carrie? Oh, Carrie. Carrie, went, d- during the Rage, Carrie 2. This book gets mentioned so often in so many different ways. It's almost a MacGuffin all on its own. 
of what he's actually doing, who he's rioting about, who he's going to piss off in this town because he's going to insult everybody by bringing it up. I don't know. It's a weird choice that never really just pans out as well as they think it does. Matt, you agree? I'll, I'll take a daily double for 600, Alex. Okay. <laughs> Susan is told by her mom to stay away from Ben as she reveals that Floyd slit his wrist in prison and drank his own blood. So Susan how does that, that kill a Go vampire ahead. exactly? Say that, say that again because I stepped on it. How, how does that kill a vampire exactly? That just sounds like recycling. As it stands, or as it stakes, I find <laughs> just so much of this to be immensely underwhelming. Although I'll give it this. Uh, let me save that for the next scene. A good podcaster illuminates truth. Thank you, boys. All right, so next week we're going to do... You want to get Megan in the bag, Matt? What do you want to do next week? Well, let me check the, uh, the calendar just to confirm... Get the first Star Wars done too. Well, that's what I'm checking to see if that's indeed okay. Um, let's it's see. called the New Hope, sir. Yeah, so, <laughs> Shut so the Stan, fuck up. So we are officially caught up. 